0: You can find it on page five of your bulletin. Please follow along with me. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the, te- the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who held who war against them. Wait a minute. And also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Lord, we thank you for your word. And, Lord, I pray for Joel as he explains this passage that we will hear it with our ears and receive it with our heart. And, Lord, that we'll find how it applies to our lives and that we will be obedient to do what we need to do. Lord, that we may draw closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: A few years back, uh, Microsoft released an AI chatbot on Twitter. And uh, they released uh, this bot with the idea that the underlying software would consume cultural info and then actually interact with people on Twitter. Uh, The article that underlies this story said, quote, It's an experiment in conversational understanding. Uh, to bring casual and playful conversation," end quote. The problem with the AI chatbot is that social media is social media, and it was based off of people interacting with it. So they had a good goal in developing this. Let's have playful, thoughtful conversations. that's driven by the software, but the software is driven by the people that it interacts with on social media. The developers, to put it lightly, underestimated the dark content that exists on social media. They didn't realize the number of bad faith actors who would undermine their mission of thoughtful, playful conversation with other content, whether out of uh, mockery or having fun, that people would undermine their mission. So guess how long the chatbot stayed up? How long do you give it? What do you think? One day. That's about it, right? 16 hours, actually, to be exact. Didn't even make it a day, because social media is social media. Within 16 hours, that's how long it took before the chatbot was producing misinformation, racist material, and conspiracy theories. Functioning way outside of the parameters that Microsoft had ever envisioned when they started this. So, they took it offline. Uh, Let's cut that project. It was a good starting point, a good intention, but the context and obstacles that they didn't appreciate undermined all that they set out to do. And in the city of Pergamum, this city in modern-day Turkey, Christians were living in a cosmopolitan, educated, pluralistic society. And as they started out life as Christians, they soon realized that they faced their own set of obstacles to faithfulness. There were dark messages of idolatry. Worship these other gods. There's lots of options out there. Worship them. There were bad faith actors who viewed the Christians as like kind of the new kids, the new religion on the block. So let's mess with them. There were people who just didn't care for who they were and sought to undermine them at every turn, seeking to hold on to power. And in this case, much more than some social media account, people's lives, people's faith was on the line. So John's writing to this church in Pergamum. He's trying to encourage them because the reality is, when it comes to faith, both for the Christians in the first century in Asia Minor, as well as for you and I today, we can't take our faith offline. If we're going to live in the world, we're going to have to work through how do we know good from evil. What do I believe about these claims of who God is? Is that who created the world? Is that what gives me a sense of mission and purpose? How do I respond when I fail, when I struggle, when things just go wrong? Those aren't questions that we have the privilege to just take offline and never deal with because we're human. And so for us, we have to work out how can we persevere With all that's set against us. That's what John is going after in this specific letter to Pergamum in Revelation 2. And that's what we're going to take up in two points this morning. The temptation to change and the truth that conquers. So first, the temptation to change. The opening structure of this letter, it'll be familiar if you have been with us for the last few weeks— Uh, It's a bit of an introduction and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So there's an intro and then a reference back to chapter 1 verse 16, this vivid imagery of who King Jesus is and who they can look out for upon his return. And then in verse 13, after that introduction, there's this reminder that God is not far off. He hasn't just created the world and left it alone, but God continues to engage us today. He knows us. He knows our name. He knows who we are. He knows what we do. He knows our struggles. And so Jesus sends word in verse 13, I know you. I know where you dwell And where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was a tough place. And verse 13 is cueing you to that reality. If you could go back and walk through the streets of Pergamum, you would catch a glimpse of various temples throughout all the streets with different worship activities going on, different feasts, their own priesthoods, priests and priestesses. You would see a huge altar to the Greek god Zeus, up on the hill behind the city. You would find in the city of Pergamum the oldest temple in that area to the emperor of Rome and to worshiping that emperor and his empire. And so every corner that you went around in every street, there would be some temptation to change directions if your view on the world is that there's one God who's created the world and one God who is actively redeeming it through his son, Jesus Christ. If that is your profession of faith, then walking the streets of Pergamum will push in on you. There will be people literally calling out, like, mm mm, that's not the right direction. I've got a new direction for your life that you should consider. And so uh, when uh, John is sending the word of Jesus to this church, he says, Listen, God knows, God knows where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, whether when you were growing up with your parents or if your parents now, There is a way that parents have to talk about adult stuff in front of young ears who always seem to be turned on to the adult conversation when you don't want those young ears to quite pick up. So you don't actually name the things you're talking about. You allude to them. You give reference to them. You use uh, vivid imagery as, you know, a type of metaphor of what it is that we're talking about. And this idea of a throne of Satan is John's way of using parenting language to talking about the pressures that the Roman Empire was putting on Christians to worship Caesar. Effectively, uh, it was dangerous to go around talking about explicitly uh, just how bad Caesar is and how he's forcing us to worship him as if he were some god. But to even refer to that temptation could bring death. And so, John uses almost this catch-all, the underlying most fundamental driver of idolatry and worship of things apart from God, which is Satan. And so this language of throne of Satan is not some actual physical edifice that you would have seen if you were walking along in the streets of Pergamum, but rather it's parenting language at the table to help any of you who have ears to hear, oh yeah, Pergamum, that is a tough place. And so John writes, and he says, God knows that, he knows where you're at, and he sees your perseverance. In verse 13, he continues, you hold fast to his name. You're faithful. You refuse to deny the faith. When they come to you and say, is it Caesar who you worship? You refuse to change. You don't give in to that temptation. You don't flex and break under the power that's being brought to bear against you. Instead, you bear faithful witness. That includes someone named Antipas, who gave his life, paid the ultimate price for maintaining the faith. So what's happening in this moment is that people are standing against these temptations to change course. Temptations to incorporate new stuff. Temptations to tweak and build upon or add to their entry profession of faith. That Jesus is Lord. That he is king. That he will make right what's wrong in the world. And that it's in him that we place our hope. Just this basic profession of faith, people were pushing on them. And it's not as if that kind of pressure, those temptations to change, are narrowly considered in the first century or in that region of the world or in that culture. Temptations to change for Christians continue even to today and have existed throughout the history of our faith. So while we walk down the street, we may not run into temples at every corner, at least not temples of that sort. We face our own pressures. We receive targeted advertising to these supercomputers in our pockets that tell us how we're incomplete if we don't have that one extra thing, or that new item, or that newest addition. We face the pressures, particularly in Montgomery County, to keep up and to demonstrate our competence, to succeed, and to show that we are worthy. And the sense is that we feel good when we do do well or things go right, but the pressure to do that begins to add on to where we find our identity. We may feel the pressure to look good, to dress good, Make sure that we're always uh, our best in front of others. We may feel pressure as a community to grab onto power. We think we may have once had power. We start to lose it or it starts to slip from our control. And we think, let's grab it back. Because otherwise, what will happen to the world if we're not the ones who are in control? That's a temptation for our church in the United States as well. And so these temptations to change, to add on, to incorporate new stuff, it, it's not just set in the first century. It's not just who John writes to then, it's who John writes to now. His call to persevere, even to the point of your own life, it continues for you and me today to watch out over our lives to think and consider how our faith is being pressured, how we're being tempted to shift, and how to do business with that, as opposed to just taking it on board and changing with the flow of our day. So, up to this point, Christians had it seems like, remained faithful in the face of that pressure. They held fast. They did not deny their faith even when that pressure was ramping up, even to the point of death. But there was still struggle in the community. That temptation to change uh, brought tension points pressing in on them. And John continues in verse 14 to unpack that just a bit. He writes, But I have a few things against you, some stuff that you as a church should consider. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. There were people who... We're adding on to the work of Jesus in the first century in Pergamum. People who were saying, listen, you know, okay, you can still have Jesus, but maybe just worship the emperor a bit. Maybe just satisfy the Romans. Just add on just a little bit where you can introduce, like just throw a feast or something. Have a party in Caesar's name. Just give the appearance that you're giving some of your worship. Yeah, 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 you're about Jesus, but there's this other stuff. That... This language of uh, food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality is is dealing with taking on the practices of the world around them and incorporating it into the community in ways that John thought fundamentally changed not only their profession of faith, but how it is that they lived in day-to-day life. One New Testament scholar, a man named G.K. Beale, in his commentary, said this, the false teachers were arguing that believers could have closer relationships with pagan cultures and institutions and religion, and that that would help them. Beal highlights the usage of Balaam and Balak as an image of God's people being steered to take on other cultural idols, the gods or worship of those around them, and to incorporate it in. It's a story that you can read later. You can go back to the book of Numbers. That's way back on the opposite end of Revelation. You can look in Numbers 22 through 25. That will give you a sense of that whole story. But the gist of it is that this shows you a few things. First, that John is very familiar with the Old Testament, and that informs the writing to these churches. And second, it helps us get a sense that these temptations to change or go new ways, to give up or to add to our basic profession of faith, those aren't new. They face the people of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. This is what it looks like to walk the life of faith and to try to persevere. And so, what are we supposed to do? John calls them to repent in verse 16. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's an image of judgment. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What are we supposed to do? if the people of God, in a variety of points in history and culture, have given in, have incorporated, have added on, John says you repent and you turn to God to bring about deliverance. That's the Christian hope. It's that God himself enters in, that you can't take some continuing education course to get over idolatry. You uh, can't take some online on the side course in order to uh, accomplish uh, never facing those pressures again. There is no article to be sent or link to be shared that has the seven steps to never facing idolatry in your life ever again. I mean, someone may have written that, but that's not john's answer john's answer for us is that we turn to the living and true god that that's where our hope is to be found it's the work of the triune god the father calling his people to himself in the midst of distractions the son accomplishing salvation and uniting them together to himself through faith and the spirit working in people's lives, giving them ears to hear and eyes to see, and applying that salvation to the lives of people. So this call to repentance and our hope today is rooted in the work of the triune God. That is the truth that conquers, that Jesus and Jesus alone is king. And every time we're tempted to add to that our own accomplishments or this one other item, or this next step of success, or how great our kids are, or how I look, or what power I can grab onto, anything that we're tempted to add, John calls us back to the resurrected Jesus and says, cling tightly to him. That's how grace works. The minute that you are tempted to change and add on success or good looks, the minute it becomes all about you, you want to talk about pressure. Figure out the complex relationships and problems in your life all on your own apart from who God is. That's pressure. And John's warning you to say that will never actually end well. Watch out. Instead, repent, which is a way of saying turn and come back to Jesus. He alludes to the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name as rewards, what to look forward to, what the rest of Revelation unpacks uh, in the chapters ahead, as that is the direction to travel. How do you know the faithful way of travel? Cling tightly to Jesus in faith. And if you do, this is what awaits you as part of God's redemption, his work in the world, and his restoration of all things. There is a poem that was written in the 1970s. Uh, It was written by Percy Shelley, and it's about a figure named Ozymandias. uh, In the poem, it's short. You can Google it on the Poetry Foundation or something later. It's worth reading. He talks about a figure in the desert, a huge figure with just two legs standing there. And then vast sand. And on this figure of giant stone legs, but nothing else, is an inscription. The words, according to the poem, read, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Then Percy notes in the poem, Nothing beside those two legs remain. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, The lone and level sands stretch far away. Shelley's poem is highlighting at least a couple of things that are worth noting for us in close. The first is, it is easy to lay claim to being king of kings. Ozymandias is a warning to uh, making bold proclamations of what will be and what will stand, and who should despair in the face of it, right? Uh, The poem is, uh, on its face, a warning against making big claims, against hubris, against pride and arrogance. But I thought it fitting in light of what's going on here. John is putting in opposition what people saw in Pergamum as the throne of Satan— and what God is doing through his son, Jesus Christ, in his return as king. And out of those two options, John is declaring that there is only one king of kings. There is only one throne that remains eternal. There is only one hope for us as Christians to cling tightly to, for our identity, for our security, for all of who we are, and that's to Jesus. That is the good news of Christianity, not that you have to face the pressure of cleaning yourself up or accomplishing new stuff. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus' throne is established, and it is the only one that will stand eternally. And it's a one that you're invited to participate, to worship at, to sit at, to live at. Not because of what you've done, not because of who you are but because you've turned in faith to Jesus. That, friends, is the Christian hope. That is our mission as a church in the face of our own temptations and pressures in our day. The myriad of things that would call us, distract us, turn us aside. John, in his letter to Pergamum, reminds each of you this morning, return to the throne of Jesus. King Jesus will return one day. And it will be soon. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will watch over us as a community and that we would be faithful. Recognize the pull to distract ourselves, to entertain ourselves, to prove ourselves, to hear from even frail and weak sources that we are good or that we have it together. And God, I pray that none of those things will become our ultimate identity. There's no security in that. God, I pray that we will rest in you. That we will cling tightly to you. And I pray that we'll persevere even to the point of death. In Jesus' name, amen.